yeah, I mean, get right into this thing. Uh, who or how do you see yourself in this meat suit as Martin Ball? What do you see your role in this car in this incarnation as? Like, what do you what are you here for? Would you say? Well, I guess there's a couple ways that I would immediately address that, and one is that. I have the very certain knowledge that I am not just Martin in the meat suit. Um, so that's one of the things that I start with that all of us, so this would be my perspective. This is my take on things that all of us are actually one universal singular consciousness and being that is interacting with itself. And one of the ways in which it does that is through the evolution of these particular vehicles, these meat suits, which um, as human beings, we kind of have this unique perspective on reality in that we have a complex enough um, neurological system so that we have the self-reflective capacity. In other words, we have an ego, we have a sense of self-identity and that self-identity that is associated with this particular vehicle, this particular body is known as Martin. So that's me. I'm Martin and Martin has certain personality characteristics and traits and habits and ways that he thinks and acts and views and inhabits the world. And that's a part of me. That's an aspect of who I am. That's how I am expressed through this particular vehicle. But the deeper level of me is a universal and singular consciousness that is everyone and everything. And I am merely one individualized expression of that universal consciousness. So I really do see myself as being both of these things mm -hmm. simultaneously. And this is the position that I take with everyone. I let everyone know you are both of these things. And um, this is somewhat in contradiction to some spiritual traditions that I am not of the position that um, okay, the ego is completely 100% an illusion and you've got to kill your ego and then you just have to live in this universal consciousness all the time. In my opinion, that is simply a desire of the ego that yeah. wants something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so what I like to promote is more of a balance between the two, the recognition that I am the universal consciousness, but I'm also the individual that I am. And so I have my likes and dislikes and my responsibilities as the individual that I am. And for me, the primary goal then of being an individual is to really authentically live one's life and feel one's life and express the energies that we all are. And we are all a complex mix of energies as human beings. Mm. And so, yeah, you ask like, well, then what is my role? So my role is that I try and help other people understand this as best as it can be understood from an intellectual position. Ultimately, it's something that I don't think can actually be understood from an intellectual position, that this is experientially based knowledge. And that if you haven't had the experience of the direct realization that you are the universal consciousness and unitary being, that you might believe that you might want it to be true, you might not believe it, you might not want it, to be true. You might have all kinds of spiritual or religious beliefs about what you think that means or doesn't mean. Um, but those are all just products of the ego. So I also like to promote the direct experience of that realization. And, you know, one of the things that I tell people is that no matter what it is that you think that that means, you don't know. 
And that comes from my own personal experience that when I had my first unitary non-dual experience, I realized, wow, no idea I ever had of what I thought this was, was actually it now that I've experienced this. Mm -hmm. So I try and encourage other people to have that experience as well. And again, it's not so that they can kill their ego and get rid of their ego. It's more about putting the ego into perspective of realizing, oh, I am this individual and I'm also the universal consciousness. So I'm both of these things paradoxically and simultaneously. And it's not about one overriding the other in any sense. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, what I see is my role is to be myself with that knowledge and having gone through the work of really making peace with that paradoxical nature of the self. And then um, I hope that through my work and through the things that I do, through the books I write, the interviews I give, the art I make, the music I make, that it inspires others to, you know, maybe explore some of this on their own and find out this for themselves. Because I do think that this is potentially um, deeply transformative for human beings. And, you know, I just basically try and be myself that that's like, when people ask me like, well, what's your job? It's like, well, my job is kind of just to be myself. And that translates into all these different areas. And a big part of that is being a creative individual. And I think that we all have creative capabilities. And I think a lot of people are cut off from that and isolated from that. But I think that we all have that as human beings. I think that living beings are inherently creative yeah. and human beings are a very complex expression of a living being. So I think that we all have the capacity to be creative in that sense. Yeah. So I kind of wear a lot of different hats. You know, I'm a podcaster myself, so I do a lot of interviews and I write books and some of them are novels and some of them are all about non-duality and entheogens and um, some are about art and, you know, uh, formally before I was laid off, Due to cutbacks from the coronavirus, I was a professor of religious studies at Southern Oregon University, but haven't been for the past year because of cutbacks. So I, I do a lot of things. And also I formerly worked as um, somewhat of an underground therapist practicing what I was calling non-dual energetic therapy with 5-MeO DMT. But that's something that's been five or six years since I've done so. Mm -hmm. that's that, that's my short answer to the question <laughs> yeah that's awesome man um and is that how you came to your unitary your unitive experience of the whole was through five meo is that your first kind of um you know is that how you reached your direct experience of essentially you know everything that you are not just your ego that definitely was the key that when i had my first what I describe as my first full 5-MeO-DMT experience. And I always say that, that the first full experience, because I had experimented a little bit with 5-MeO-DMT in the form of Yopo seeds um, back in 2007 and 2008, but it was in early 2000. No, excuse me, 2006 and 2007, I'd experimented with Yopo seeds, which contained 5-MeO-DMT. Um, but none of those were experiences that were enough to actually um, activate a non-dual experience. That, mm. that it wasn't at a level where we could say that my ego was effectively overridden by the expansive energy of 5-MeO-DMT. Mm -hmm. So then in early 2008, 
um, I was invited to come and experience first um, the secretions of the Sonoran Desert Toad, which contains 5-MeO-DMT inside its secretions. <clears throat> and that was a bit stronger than the Yopo seed experiences I had had, but it too was not enough to say that it was a full non-dual unitary experience. It was just interesting. It was different. And then about a month later, um, again, this would be early 2008, probably in January, I was invited to come back to this person's house and experience uh, the free base form of pure 5-MeO-DMT. And within, while I was still inhaling the hit, it was at that point that I knew, oh my God, this is it. <laughs> and had a complete transcendence of the ego and complete identification with unitary consciousness, infinite, unconditional love, infinite presence, infinite energy, eternal being. And so that was, yeah, that was really the experience where at that point, no other experience I'd ever had before that came even close to that. Though I would say that prior to that, I certainly had non-dual leanings where you know, I'd, I'd experienced um, psilocybin mushrooms and my take on psilocybin mushrooms was that everything that was produced within the experience somehow was me um, and not necessarily the egoic me. So I felt that, well, this is kind of one consciousness interacting with itself, but I couldn't with any confidence, you know, I would say, well, that's my interpretation of it. But here from this 5-MeO-DMT experience, it was just obvious. It was undeniable. It was just very clearly, oh, this is the nature of reality. That mm. there's, there's no question about that for me any longer. And it, it, that's actually the point where I started freely using the word God, that I had been very hesitant to ever use the word God, that for me, it just conjured up um, the... Uh, Abrahamic religious traditions and the Bible and, and the Quran and um, the Torah. And I didn't believe any of that stuff. So I was really hesitant to use the word God. But after this first 5-MeO DMT experience, that was the only word I had for it was, well, I just encountered God. And it wasn't some transcendent deity that exists somewhere else. It actually is the consciousness and being and presence that exists inside everything and everyone at all times, and that there's nothing separate from that. And so ever since then, I've been using the word God. And, but that's what I mean when I, when I use that word. And, I, and I'm not making any kind of religious or even what I would consider to be a spiritual reference. Mm. That's powerful. Do you think that's the original interpretation of God of all of these, you know, like all, all the books that you just mentioned? Do you think that's really what they were getting at? And we kind of just lost uh, touch with the original meaning over thousands of years? Well, I think to some degree. Um, but it, even in, you know, when we're talking about the Abrahamic religious traditions that we have to always look at their lineage, that it starts with Judaism and then that gets appropriated and transformed into Christianity. And then both Judaism and Christianity got appropriated and transformed into Islam. And there have always been branches within Judaism, Christianity, and Islam that have had kind of this non-dual perspective. You know, like if we look at um, the early Christian Gnostics, that their position was that Jesus was not a unique individual, that he was a spiritual teacher who actually was not even an actual person, that they didn't even view him as a historical person, but that he's a spiritual figure um, 
that is there to help other people realize that they too are both human and divine at the same time. And that bef before the time of Christianity, there were mystical branches of Judaism that also basically taught that the divine force is within everyone. But Judaism as a whole is, you know, in religious studies, it's something that we would um, primarily identify as a numinous religious tradition, meaning that the sacred and the divine somehow exists outside of yourself and even exists outside of reality. And that's where we get this image of the creator God who says, oh, let there be light. And then there was light and let there be the heavens and the earth. And then there's the heavens and the earth, but God exists outside of that. Whereas this view that I'm promoting is that God actually is the universe. God is reality. That hmm. reality is not something that's separate from this divine consciousness. So I think that there's always been these different branches and different interpretations. And we see the same thing in Eastern religions as well, that there's more numinous interpretations that the divine exists outside of the self or outside of the real reality. And then there's the more mystical or unitive approach that exists within everything. So there's always been the kind of these divergent branches and a lot of it is related to how the religion is positioned um, sociologically speaking in terms of is it part of the existing power structure or is it a small group of people who are meditating off trying to realize their true nature or is it part of a um, top-down enforcement system of rules and laws and regulations and you know then there are different interpretations that we find of divinity depending on how the religion is situated within the larger culture and societal context. Mm. Yeah. Ultimately, they're all just symbols, though. They're all just pointing in the direction to yourself, right? They're all just like, there's no which way of words that can somebody could read or somebody could hear that could truly bring, to, bring them to that sense of God that you felt on 5MEO or that anybody else feels on whatever psychedelic or practice that they uh, decide to uh, take part of so I mean it's just like it's just like all of these books all of these traditions it just seems like way more than we need to say I feel like it's simple like it's just putting it simply it's like that we are part of the whole we are this entire thing and you you if you know you are part of the whole you are god you if god is the whole you are part of the whole you are god essentially it's that simple it's it's like i feel like we overcomplicate it we you know we look to the outside world for answers but really like you know like you said the kingdom of heaven is within man you just have to find it and it's it seems so simple doesn't it like it seems like a like a simple idea even though it's just an idea and the idea isn't the truth but it, the concept itself is like to internalize that it makes sense to just think like if this is just all one energetic process that we find ourselves in, um, we're not separate from that process. We are the process. It's to me, it just seems like a no brainer. So like, like, of course, of course, we are um, sons of God. We are we are just byproducts of the process. Like to me, it just makes sense. And we just. For some reason, as human beings, we just convolute the meaning of these words and just twist it in other ways. And I, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me, man. Like, what do you think is the, I mean, other, I mean, is, is psychedelics the answer? Is 5-MEO like the, the quickest and easiest way 
used in the right way, used with the right intention, the, the quickest way for people to come to this realization within themselves? Um, I do think it is. Yeah, that that's definitely my take on it. And just kind of an agreement with what you're saying here is that it is really simple. And yeah. What's ironic is that the ego doesn't actually want that, that the mm -hmm. ego likes things to be complicated. It wants mysteries that it has to figure out. It wants there to be secrets. It wants there to be levels of initiation. And the ego likes meaning and it likes structure and it likes to create meaning when we don't actually need to have those meanings. And, you know, that's where religion grows out of that. You know, we have this core experience that you can have like, oh my God, it's all God. And that's me and I'm it. And it's all one. And, and the problem with that is that it, then it doesn't come with instructions for life. It doesn't tell you like what to do or what not to do. And it doesn't tell mm -hmm. you, um, you know, how to be a good little boy or a good little girl. <laughs> and the ego wants those kinds of things. And especially if you're trying to organize a society, then the society has, has to say, well, what are our values? You know, what do we determine what makes a good Jew or a good Christian or a good Muslim? And what are the rules and laws that they have to obey? And then how do we organize our society around these rules and laws? Mm -hmm. And especially then if you um, <clears throat> fetish, fetishize like the written word, such as happened in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, this idea of, oh, well, God gave us this book, and this book has all the instructions, and so this is what we're supposed to follow. That really turns people away from any kind of direct experience, because they keep going back to, no, it's the book, it's the book, it's the book. Yeah. And it's the beliefs that go with the book, and the rules that go with the book, and that this is a lawgiver, and we've got to obey the law, whereas... You know, my take is that, look, the only laws of God are what we call the laws of physics and the laws of chemistry and the laws of gravity and things like that. You know, the laws that hold the universe together as a functional, evolving energetic system that can be co coherent and ongoing and stable through time. But th those are the laws of God and the yeah. laws of biology. But um, there are no moralistic laws of God or no social laws of God. Those are all just invented by people. So yeah, it is, it's incredibly simple in a really profound way. And that's why, you know, when I kind of went through this process myself, and I will say one of the difficulties is that when you have an experience like this, um, this was certainly true for me. And it's, I think it's true for many people as well. It's a very common problem where you have this experience and then you come back from it and you say, Oh my God, I think I'm God. And then the ego says, you can't say that. That's such an egotistical thing to say. And so it immediately traps people into this idea of, oh, well, that 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 is, it's arrogant if I say something like that, or I, I need to be humble, or that's not being spiritual, or you know, that's not being right, that I'm claiming something really special for myself. And this is why I always emphasize that, say, yeah, I tell people that I'm God, and I tell people that, and you're God too, and yeah. so is that person, and so is that person. I'm not claiming anything exclusive, but it's a hard thing for the ego to accept. And again, the ego wants things to be more complicated than it is. But after I went through my process of really, you know, reconciling all of this within myself, that the first book I wrote at that point was my book, Being Human, which is all about this idea that we are all God and we're all humans. And so this is how it works. And it's a very naturalistic process. I'm not talking about anything that's religious or spiritual. This is just reality as it is. And it's a very short book. You know, it's only like a hundred pages long because I wanted to keep it really simple and not over 
you know, complexify the issue. Cause I think that also people tend to get, you know, people who get into these areas, they like to get into metaphysics and esoteric teachings and, and all of that I also see is largely unnecessary. And so then back to the question of 5-MeO-DMT, um, I just think it's the most effective thing that exists within reality because it is in the sense that, so my definition of the ego is that the human ego is merely a collection of energetic patterns and habits that we have developed with which we identify and we say, oh, I think this way, I act this way, I like this, I don't like that, I believe this, I don't believe that. But these are all just patterns of energy. And over the course of our individual development, we've all come to identify with these patterns of energy. And then, you know, people even say, well, yeah, that time that I was drunk and I did that really awful thing. Well, that wasn't me, right? Because they say, well, I, you know, I was out of my mind. And so that wasn't me, but the real me is, you know, just these collections of patterns of energy that everybody's used to. Um, but what happens with 5-MeO-DMT is that this is a neurotransmitter that really rapidly alters our energetic experience of reality where if you take enough, the way that I like to characterize it is that you can go from zero to infinity within a couple heartbeats. And as all this energy is just suddenly expanding to these, from the ego's perspective, just these inconceivable levels that it gives the opportunity to actually override all of these energetic structures of the ego. So it's not Here's why I say, look, it's not a spiritual process. It's not about, you know, clarifying your consciousness or, you know, getting rid of bad karma or being a moral or ethical person. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It's just that our limited patterns of the ego are limited. And here we have this introduction of this infinite source of energy. And so the ego is presented with this opportunity within a couple seconds of, okay, I can let go and dissolve into this infinite state of being. Or I could fight with it and hold on and struggle, which is never recommended because that's totally miserable and it really, really sucks. Or you can just let go into it and then you completely transcend the ego and the ego thinks, oh my God, I'm dying. I'm never coming back from this. And then it comes back, you know, 20 minutes later as the psychedelic wears off. Um, but within the, you get this, then this time period of maybe five minutes maybe 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, where you can have just pure awareness that is unbound by any particular identity. And in that experience, that sense of I can realize, oh, I am all of this. I am infinite. I am eternal. I am everything. Because within this infinite state, there's the potential for any particular thing exists simultaneously within this infinite state. Mm -hmm. And then as the psychedelic wears off, the ego starts to come back, those patterns start to reform. And then, you know, by the end of it, you realize, oh, I'm Martin again. How about that? <laughs> Wasn't mm -hmm. expecting that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so as a tool, it's just incredibly effective in that sense that yeah. you can, it doesn't really matter what anyone's personal history is. It doesn't really matter what their beliefs are. It doesn't matter what their spirituality or religion is. You can give them this experience and they can all come away with it with the same results. Not that it happens automatically, 
uh, because it certainly doesn't, but it has the potential for anybody who has the full unitary non-dual experience on 5-MeO-DMT. It's pretty much exactly the same as anybody else who has that. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, you know, people seek after these experiences through their religion and through their spirituality or through their meditation or through their yoga or whatever it may be. And just comparatively speaking, those are very, very slow paths. And it's very easy for the ego to get distracted and lost and attached along the way, practicing any of these other um, less effective methodologies. So in in my opinion, it's simply the most effective tool that exists within reality uh, to have this kind of experience. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also, since the human body produces 5-MeO-DMT, I think it's most likely that anybody who reaches that state during meditation, what's happening is that their body is actually producing an excess of 5-MeO-DMT at that time. And that's actually what's generating the experience. So it's, it's still 5-MeO, even if somebody isn't you know, taking it from an outside source. Mm-hmm. So the body uh, endogenously produces 5-MeO, not NNDMT? It does both. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, we have our basic tryptamine molecule that our body uses for a wide variety of different things. Um, We use the tryptamine molecule to make serotonin. Our body uses it to make melatonin. And our body also uses it to make DMT and 5-MeO-DMT. Though usually both the DMT and 5-MeO-DMT are just in very, very small trace amounts. But we have receptor sites throughout our body that are activated by these tryptamine molecules. So in that sense, it's biologically very natural to us as human beings. And this is also why things like magic mushrooms are effective, why ayahuasca is effective, is because they also contain these tryptamines that our body knows how to process and knows how to work with. Mm. That's so interesting, isn't it? And, and it is. And they say and it's illegal, but it's in us. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have these two different, very powerful psychedelic molecules that exist inside every human being on the planet and inside every mammal as well. And the precursors to these molecules are found ubiquitously throughout biological life. It's mm. in plants, it's in insects. Um, they're really, they're all over the place. And because both DMT and 5-MeO-DMT are illegal, for example, in the United States, um, we are all walking around possessing and using illegal drugs um, every moment of every day. So we're all yeah. in violation of the law, which <laughs> is just absurd. And yeah. even the idea that human beings have the authority to make any part of nature illegal is um, just another interesting product of the human ego. Yeah, it's craziness. People will look back in the future and be like, wow, they they lived in, like they'll look at us like cavemen when they know that like we made these these things that bring us to unitary experiences of God illegal that are of yeah. nature. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's always important to point out that kind of the current drug war regime that we've been living through for the past couple of generations is actually an aberration in human history. That it's really important to point that out, which is not to say that all societies have 
accepted all use of mind-altering substances at all times. Um, but it is to say that it's the only time in history that plants have been made illegal by governing bodies and governments and politicians. And we can go pretty much anywhere around the world and find cultures that made use of mind-altering plants and fungi that lived within their environment. That this has been a part of human history for as long as we can measure in any capacity where, mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've now find, um, it's like the guy who defrosted in the Alps. I think they call him the ice man and he had a little pipe and he had marijuana with him. You know, this huh. guy was frozen for like 3000 years in the Alps. And, um, also in South America, they found a mummified body, uh, that was several thousand years old. And he had a little pouch that contained DMT and coca leaves. Um, and you know, there's been burial chambers found in ancient China with pounds and pounds and pounds of cannabis <laughs> in there. And in caves across Europe, they've found evidence of cannabis and opium being burned in caves for ceremonial rituals. And even recently, um, a Jewish, a small Jewish temple was unearthed through um, archaeology. And they found that inside the temple, there was resin from cannabis being burned. It was based, the temple itself is basically being used as a hot box. So, you know, <laughs> Jewish people were going in there and they were throwing cannabis on the fire and they were all getting high for Yahweh, you know. So, th this has been a part of human history for thousands and thousands of years. And it's only recently that governments have said, oh, these things are bad. We have to outlaw them and put anyone who would use them in jail. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in Hinduism, the oldest religious text in the world is the Rig Veda. And the entire book is about how to take psychedelics and have a, a mystical experience. Mm -hmm. And in the ancient Greek world, we had the, um, the Greek mystery cults that were using um, psychedelics for up to 3,000 years. Um, so this stuff has been going on for a long, 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 long time. What was different in the past is that a lot of this was knowledge that was only shared with initiates. You know, you had to yeah. join the temple or join the cult, and then you would be served that sacrament. And even then, you wouldn't be told what was in it. So it wasn't, you know, like the general population was just using these things all the time. But they've been a, a part of the religious and cultural history of human beings for thousands of years. And so I agree with you that, you know, we're, we're now on the dying end of the war on drugs that I think most rational observers have determined that it's been harmful to society, it's been irrational, and it's time to put it to rest. And we're not completely there yet. But I do think that 50 years from now, maybe even 10 years from now, they'll look back and say, wow, we finally got out of that madness that we were kind of insane about mm -hmm. drugs and particularly things that come from the earth um, that are non-toxic, non-addictive, not harmful, and have all kinds of emotional and psychological benefits to their use that, yeah, this, this time period that we've been living through will be looked back on as a really odd time period in human history, I think. Yeah. Take this in, Martin. It's really, it's almost laughable. Yeah, it really is. Like what? Like what? Is, like really? What is happening? Like just internalize it. Like why? 
Like these things unite us with God. They give us salvation. You know, they give us a certain sense of like, like you can't even put words on it. And the government says, mm-mm, don't touch that. It's yeah, can't do, can't do that. Yeah, and with, <laughs> you know, there's all different kinds of psychedelics and they all have different signatures and different presentations and they open you up to different kinds of experiences. Um, but especially when it comes to 5-MeO-DMT, that there's the potential to really have this experience that I like to describe as divine grace, which for me, that was that first full experience that I had. I would call that divine grace, where I just felt an overwhelming sense of infinite, unconditional love, love for myself, love for my life, love for everything that exists, for everyone that exists. And this sense of that no matter what happens in your life, everything is actually perfect mm-hmm. and that you can trust that and that we would want to make access to that experience illegal is insane because yeah. that is the most healing experience that anyone could ever have. And also with now with some of the scientific research that's been done, like at Johns Hopkins University, where they found that if you really want someone to have a healing experience from psilocybin mushrooms, you've got to give them a big enough dose so that they might actually get into a mystical experience, which is along these lines of this sense of unity, this sense of being, this sense of um, infinite love. And that that's where the therapeutic potential really lies is in these deep mystical states. And, you know, you can go to church your entire life and you will, might, never have an experience like that. You could spend your entire life meditating and never have an experience like that. But here we have a very reliable methodology that potentially makes it available to any person on the planet. And I sincerely believe that if everybody had this experience, we'd live in a very, very different world. We would no longer be divided by politics and race and religion and gender and ideology and all the rest of that, because those are all products of the ego of how we want to identify and separate ourselves from others. So Mm -hmm. I think that the potential there is absolutely enormous. It's it's beyond what we can even conceive. (laughs) Seriously, 100%. And that's the biggest critique I hear from people that, you know, actually have never done that or haven't had the experience is that like, well, you know, you're just like chasing a high, man. Like it's it's a temporary thing, you know, that you're just, you're just trying to get high, but it's not about that it's about like you said you go under these transformative experiences you reach a certain revelation about yourself and the universe you live in and you realize that you are the universe you live in and it never leaves you it's something that you know you could do this once and for me at least i'm talking from personal experience you can do this once and it's just forever in my being like for i don't it's not something that you just simply like oh that's it it wasn't just something like, oh, I just got high and just saw some crazy colors and felt like a certain kind of way. It was like, no, this showed me a totally different way to approach what it means to be a human being. And that will never leave me. Like, I don't think for as long as I'm alive, it'll that just there's there's something, some neurons connected that weren't able to connect before. And I I just um I I don't know. It showed me what it means to be here, what it means to be alive. 
And what it showed me ultimately was that, you know, I am part of this process. We were all part of this, this giant cataclysm of, of, of energy just unfolding upon itself, right? And if I'm part of that in this meat suit, that means you're part of that too. And if we're both a part of that, we're both the same thing, what does that mean? That means you're my brother and I'm going to love you. That's ultimately what I can get from it. You, you know how we were talking about before? Um, you said like there's no real um, framework or guidelines or rules that you get from the experience. Well, my personal rule is like, well, if we're all one, I'm going to treat you like you're me. Yeah. And that that's putting keeping the simplicity topic. That's keeping it simple. It's like, okay, we're one. We're the same thing. I'm going to love you to the best of my ability that I can. And I hope you do the same. Keeping yeah. it simple, man. That's that's the, the the biggest thing that I get from, you know, psychedelics. I've never done 5-MEO, though, but I have had experiences on high doses of psilocybin that I think um, bring me to a state that we're talking about. I mean, I, I don't I can't speak on 5-MEO, though, personally. Yeah. And I just want to agree with you that it's not about chasing a high. That means, look. There's lots of different uses for psychedelics, and there's lots of different applications. And you know, people who are seeking different kinds of therapy, they might need multiple experiences with psychedelics to really process through a trauma or transform themselves. But at the immediate level, yes, having a unitary experience is transformative in and of itself. And for many people, they do feel that once they've had that there's really, there's no going back from that. And that there, well, there was my life before then. And then there's my life after that. And it isn't something that you need to keep chasing after. And in fact, it often doesn't work if you continue to chase after mm. it. Mm -hmm. um, like with 5-MeO DMT, you know, I, I have, like I said, I described this experience as like an experience of grace. And it has been in my experience that most people will really only have that full experience of grace once. And that mm. if they use it other times, then they'll be working through other things that might arise. And there might be elements of that grace experience, but it's not something that shows up every time. I mean, it's not something that needs to. And that anyone who keeps using psychedelics and trying to chase after and replicate the same event again and again and again, that is where someone is then misusing the tool, they're kind of missing the point. Mm. Um, but for me, it was really that from that experience, it was, wow, I had a lot of beliefs and ideas before, and now I don't have those beliefs and ideas. And now I have this, this level of knowledge that comes from experience and that that is where it becomes transformative. And then, you know, you can spend the rest of your life thinking about, okay, so then how do I live that? And just like you're saying of, okay, if we're really all are one, then how do I show love for other people? How do I show love for other beings? And how do I show love even for inanimate objects? Because they're all part of the same thing <laughs> as well. Mm -hmm. And what's really important within that, that I think a lot of people miss is also, and how do I love myself? Yeah. Because myself is actually all of these things. So sometimes people get misdirected and they think that, oh, well, I have to spend my life in service of other people. But then they, they neglect themselves in the process. And they're like, oh, well, I want to show love to other people, but I'm not 
showing love to myself. And so for me, that's an important part of the equation. And one of the ways that that translates for me is under this idea of your job is to be yourself, to be authentically yourself. And that that is an act of loving yourself, which means not telling yourself, I need to be this, or I need to be that, or I should do this, or I should do that, but really getting in touch with how do I genuinely feel? And then how do I operate from that place and give myself permission to be myself? Because through the ego, we're almost always trying to be someone or something. And a lot of times it's not authentic for what we actually think and actually feel. That So we invest great deals, amount of energy into trying to be something or be someone. And that might not be engaging our true energy, or it might even be suppressing or masking our true energy. So learning how to live in love and to live in love unconditionally means extending it to others, but also extending it to yourself and then treating others from that place that you want to give yourself freedom to be yourself. So you want to give others the freedom to be themselves. Exactly. And that it also comes with a great deal of personal responsibility because, you know, if we have this idea that God exists outside of us, then we can get into the drama of, Oh God, why are you punishing me? Or why are you making things so hard for me? Or then if something good happens, we say, Oh, thank you, God. Thank you for blessing me. Versus this is really reorienting around the idea of it's up to you, what you make of yourself and what you make of your life and how, you choose to comport yourself and behave that it's not about getting some reward. It's not about avoiding punishment. It's not about making some deity happy. It's about really actualizing your full potential as an individual. So it puts a lot on you. And even there, see the ego can get confused. Something that happens with people on five MEO is they realize like, Oh my God, I'm God. And then it freaks them out because they think, Oh shit. So that means I'm responsible for everything. And so oh my God, what do I do? And that's where the ego gets confused because it's like, well, yes, you are that. And in some sense, you are responsible for everything, but not your individualized egoic perspective is not responsible for everything. It's only responsible for how you allow yourself to be yourself and love yourself or not. And it doesn't extend any further than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also how you behave towards others, but that then, of course, again, is a reflection of how you're treating yourself. Yeah. Right. So it really, it puts a lot of responsibility on you, but it doesn't put universal responsibility on you. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Beautifully so said, man. Yeah. So it, it's nice. It's because it can be overwhelming for people to realize that they're God because then they think, man, so then I'm responsible for all the chaos and I'm responsible for all the wars and all the horrors and all the terrible things. And in the deepest level, I mean, yeah, because all of reality is God. And so every war is God and every disease is God and every act of violence and racism, that's all God as well. But it doesn't mean that we as an an individual, that we're actually responsible or that we've created all of that as the individual that we are. So it's, it's living, living in balance in this paradox and not going too far or the other. Cause then another way that it can go too far is then the person comes out and says, Oh, so I'm the Holy one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the chosen one. And that's where I always like to tell people, yeah, you are. And so is everybody else. So (laughs) take responsibility for yourself. 
And that's what you can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was awesome, man. And that's pretty much what Jesus was saying. You know, he was just saying, you know, I'm the son of God, but so are you. (laughs) And that's the whole basis of his teachings. I'm actually, I have this book right here that I'm reading. It's the Yoga of Jesus, which is by Yogananda. It's, It's a great book. And it's uh it's all about that. It's it's just interpreting his words in a different way. And it's the whole basis of what we're talking about right now. It's just that, you know, we are we are yes, we are we are a part of God. We're not all of the process. Just because we're part of the process doesn't mean we are all of the process. But the part that we are, we have to take responsibility for. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. That's yeah. So love your neighbor as yourself because your neighbor actually is yourself and also it doesn't mean the solipsistic take that some people then develop is oh well then everybody else is just a projection of my mind and that's not true (laughs) that because we are inhabiting different physical vehicles that physical differences are real they're not illusory they're not imaginary that Mm -hmm. you have a different body than i have and therefore you have a completely different life history than I have. Now at the core, we are the same being. We are two different versions of the same being interacting with itself, but it's interacting through two different characters in the same way that when we're watching a movie and there's five different characters on the screen, there's five different characters on the screen. Right now we have two different characters on the screen. Hmm. It's the same actor playing those parts, but we live through the character. Yes. And that I I will be in the Martin character until the day I die. And then the Martin character is gone. Just <laughs> just doesn't exist anymore. And you're going to live through your character. You're going to live through the Gary character until the day you die. And then boop, the Gary character is gone because the vehicle is gone. And then, you know, certain iterations of the Gary character might live on. Like this is going to be on the internet. Who knows how long the internet will exist. But I'm sure that, you know, the interviews that we've done, will continue to exist on the internet after we're dead and gone. And so aspects of the character will still remain. And then people will have ideas and impressions and internalize aspects of the character. So it's, it's more than just the individual that we are, but the only, we, we're not responsible for the rest of that. You know, like an example is a lot of people have really internalized me at this point. Um, you know, I've been, doing interviews for years. I've been doing my podcast for years. I've been writing books for years. And so every once in a while, I'll get an email from someone saying, man, I was on a psychedelic trip last night and you showed up and you were kind of giving me the same instructions that I've heard you say in interviews and you're giving me guidance. And they want to know, they ask me like, so um, what were you doing at like midnight last night? And I just tell them, well, look, I was asleep. And it's like, no, no, you were really there. And I have to tell them, no, that that's your internalized projection of me, that that's, I am not personally involved in that in any way. That is, that is your projection. So we all live with projections of other people um, all the time. Like we, we have projections of who we think our parents are or who we think our significant others are or our enemies and our friends, you know? Mm -hmm. So we live with these projections, but the projections are different than the actual person themselves. And so it's, I definitely do not promote a solipsistic view of like, well, everyone's just a figment of my imagination, but no, it it doesn't work that way. And I, I always like to emphasize that reality is real. And that's another place where 
you know, in, in certain non-dual Buddhist and Hindu teachings, they always describe reality as Maya, as an illusion. And I always like to say, well, it's an illusion, but it's still real. So don't think that just because it's not what we think it is, doesn't mean that it's not there because energy is real. Transformations of energy is real. And that's what reality is made out of is, is energy. Um, it might not be what we think it is. It might not be what we project it as, but it, it's still real. So yeah. we are real different individuals. <laughs> but again, at core, there's only one actor who's playing all the parts simultaneously. Yeah. And, so that, and that's who we really are. Yes. Just You have to just realize that's just part of the game. That's just the game of life. It, we're, we're, that's kind of why we're here. We, we're our, we are the one expressing itself in a multitude of ways. And that's just life. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know. Maybe it's just for fun. But yeah, we are just the one singular consciousness. We are just infinite consciousness expressing itself. For what reason? I don't know. Are we growing into this collective being that's unified yet also separate? And and then from there, we evolve into another state of consciousness. That's what it seems like to me sometimes, but I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's that's the potential. But I do think that you've really tapped into the ultimate answer, you know, like, well, why is there a reality? Why is there something versus nothing? Yeah. And for me, the answer really is that because just being in the unitary state all the time where everything is the same thing and it's all just one, that ultimately that gets infinitely boring and that <laughs> we are dealing with an infinite intelligence here and an infinite intelligence is going to need an infinite project of infinite complexity to keep it occupied because that is the nature of intelligence. Um, and so that is then played out that I like to refer to reality as the reality game, that this is this one being is playing a game with itself and that it is very interested to see what, what can grow, what can develop, what can evolve over time. And that there's no requirement built into reality for any particular individual to wake up to the fact that, oh, I am that. But the potential is there. And since the potential is there, it does mean that there's the potential for human beings to evolve into different states of relationship, to different states of social organization, and then potentially into different kinds of beings than what we have been. Um, but it's not that there is a necessary end goal to reality, because it's just when it comes down to it, the best we can say, like, look, reality is just what God is doing because it doesn't really have anything else to do. So that's what it's doing. And it's not that there is a particular purpose to it other than, again, I think it's infinitely boring to be in an infinitely unitary state for an infinite amount of time. And it's much more fun if you can divide yourself into relatively discrete individuals and then interact with yourself. That's more fun than being infinitely alone forever with nothing that exists, yes. you know, so that reality is God's way of compensating for the fact that it's the only thing that exists. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a kind of harrowing thought to, you know, that it's, I've had people tell me that before. They're like, oh, it's scary, man, like that. I'm the only thing that, like, you know, I've had people, it was actually some guy that did DMT and he was talking to me and he said, yo, man, like, I got really scared knowing that like I'm alone. I'm the like I'm the only thing. And I was like, yeah, we're alone, but we're alone together. 
if that makes sense. <laughs> like, like we, I guess we, we are, we are one thing, but we're also not at the same time. And that's the beauty of life. I think that's what just like, just that idea to me is a beautiful thing. Like, yes, we are alone, but not, but also not at the same time, you know, that's just, that's just part of the game. And I don't know. He just got like really, he internalized that, like that loneliness we just talked about. And I don't yeah. Know. Well, so. that's, that's another one of the ways that the ego tries to come to terms with this reality. So, you know, we've already talked about that. There's, there's the solipsistic view, like, Oh, everybody's just a figment of my imagination and a projection, or there's the messianic view. Oh, I really am the one. So it's all about me. And then there's also the, the overcompensation of all oh, crap. I'm responsible for everything because it's me. And then there's also this potentially terrifying sense of loneliness that can arise from that. It's like, Oh my God, I'm the only thing that exists. I'm the only one that exists. And that's still the ego contemplating the non-dual reality because mm. what the ego is then forgetting is like, oh, wait, but I'm still inhabiting my personal meat suit and I still have my dog and there's still my mm. cat and there's still my neighbors. And so, yeah, there really is only one, but there's also billions of other people here who are also part of this oneness at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah, at the deepest existential level, we are completely alone, but at the practical level, we're not. And hmm. it's never going to be that way. So again, it's it's the balance between the two. It's yeah. the, what the difficulty is when someone spills so far over into one or the other, then they're no longer living in balance. And and this has also been my critique of the meditation and monastic traditions is that there they really do seem to be promoting this idea of, well, reality is all an illusion. So you want to transcend it. And the way you can transcend it is actually by spending the rest of your life meditating and engaging in life as little as possible. And don't ever get married and don't have sex and don't have kids and don't have a job. You know, you've just got to, you just got to meditate and be a monk or a nun. And that seems to be an avoidance of kind of the messiness of the interrelated nature of reality. Now, it's you know perhaps necessary to help people achieve that non-dual state through the meditation process because it's long it's slow it's arduous it's not particularly effective you know especially when compared to something like psychedelics or 5-MeO DMT in particular um but it does also promote sort of a, a disassociation from reality i think um which is one of the reasons that i like psychedelics is that you can provide access to these deep states of self-realization, but you do not need to dedicate your life to it. You, you can, it's ironic. You can actually do it on the weekend and then you can go back to your regular life. And then at that point you might realize like, wow, why am I working this job? Why am I in this relationship? What am I doing to myself? I'm not being true to myself. And so you might make some big changes, but I'm really interested in helping people be fully realized into the full non-dual nature of the self. And then also, again, take responsibility for who they are as an individual so that then they can live the fullest life as themselves, free from 
their internal critic and internal judge that we have absorbed from our society, our parents, our religion, our spirituality, our economic status, you know, all of Mm -hmm. that stuff that we've internalized that tell us whether we're good or bad or right or wrong. So for me, it really is about this process of helping people liberate themselves. But it's not so that you can liberate and ascend to the highest realms of the astral plane and check out of reality. It's actually, it's liberating so that you can just be here and then be yourself and then live a fulfilling and meaningful life from that place. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about escapism. It's more so I see it as a deconditioning in a way, deconditioning of the, the patterns of the ego that we've built up, that we've been conditioned to from society over the years. It's just a, it's a way to just like kind of completely shift your perspective in a very very fast and effective manner if used and integrated correctly it's really it's magic man it really is it's it's a miracle to be honest that we have these tools these substances that are here for us you know it just seems like especially when you're on them it doesn't seem like an accident it seems like this was meant to be this was meant to go into my body and show me these certain things or certain ways to look at myself it's it's a miracle it really is man Yeah. I mean, just the fact that these things exist within reality and that we have easy access to them. I mean, it kind of seems like a no-brainer. It's like, look, reality has built-in upgrade tools. (laughs) They they just exist. I mean, and we can... We can be moralistic about it. We could be religious about it. We could say, oh, that's right or that's wrong. But look, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of like complaining like, oh, why do I have to breathe oxygen to live? Oh, I wish I could just like not have to breathe or wish I just didn't have to eat. That would be so cool. And then I could just live completely independently. It's like, well, no, you need oxygen to breathe. You need water to drink. You do need food to eat. These are the biological conditions of life. And also, we do need some built-in upgrades to help us realize our full potential. And they simply exist within reality. They're called psychedelics. (laughs) They exist. They're part of nature. We're part of nature. There's nothing problematic about using these to realize the deeper nature of ourselves because that's just how they work. There's no real mystery to it in that sense. And again, going back to the idea that we've decided to make these things illegal is, is just bizarre, really, to say, oh, no, you can't do that. <laughs> and, you know, I think a more society wants to control its citizens, the more likely it is to develop those kinds of attitudes. Yeah. Because one of the things that people come away with from psychedelic experiences is, oh, wow, I really have the capacity to think about things on my own and come to insights that aren't just handed down to me from somebody else, but that I'm experiencing these things and learning these things directly on my own. And that's empowering. And often the structures of society don't want to empower people um, because that threatens the status quo. It threatens the existing power structures. So they are kind of revolutionary in that sense. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the whole message of what Timothy Leary was preaching. You can agree with how he went about it, but he just wanted people to think for himself. And that's what these things do. They allow you to find your sense of individuality. It's funny because they allow you to, if used in the correct manner, they allow you to um, discontinue your individuality and see yourself as the whole. But then that, through that process, furthers and strengthens your own individuality. It's a... Uh, like you said, I like the, the term that you said, it's balancing the paradox. 
I think that's a great term. That is a, it's just like a, a great idea because no matter what, this life is paradox. Like, no, you know, any, if you, you can only take it so far rationally, you can only take something so far logically or, or you're going to approach some kind of paradox. You just have to be able to balance the polarities of this crazy universe that we live in in order to live a fruitful life. Yeah, because when we're coming from a conceptual place, it's things either have to be A or they have to be B, right? I'm either this or I'm that. And especially when we're self-reflecting, we're like, I'm either a good person or a bad person, right? Like we want to be like, I, I want to be fully this and I don't want to be that. But here we do have this fundamental paradox of, wow, I am both the individual that I am and I'm also the universal being that is everyone and everything. But when we think of identity, we tend to think of terms of one thing. Like mm. if we say, like, here's a book, right? And we say, no, this is a book. And then somebody else might say, oh, no, but it's a weapon because I could throw it across the room and I could hit you in the face with it. And then we say, well, yeah, but then, then you're using a book as a weapon. It's still a book, right? It's still that one thing. And then if somebody mispronounces the title and we'll say, no, no, that's not the title to the book. The title to the book is this. So we're used to things being the thing that we think that they are. And that's how we organize our experience of reality. And most of the time things are consistent. So we get used to that idea that things are the thing that they are. But when we're dealing with the deeper levels of reality, we have to accept the fact that things are what they are and they also are more than that. And there's something other than that as well. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the more we've investigated physical reality, the same kind of conclusion that we get to, like when you get into quantum physics, I mean, this has been one of the major headaches of quantum physics for the past hundred plus years is that when you get down to the subatomic level, it's like, oh shit, everything is both a particle and a wave, but these are two incompatible things. How can everything be both a particle, a, an individualized unit of energy versus a wave, which is a frequency of energy that is spread out ubiquitously throughout reality. How can that be? And that's kind of reflection of the fact that, yeah, we're all both individuals and we're also this collective unitary thing at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's been hard for physicists to deal with. And it's, it's hard for the average mind to, to deal with. Like how, how can something be two contradictory things at the same time? It either is yes or no, right? We're used to thinking in binary terms and that's the way that the ego likes to operate. That's where the ego is comfortable. The ego is not comfortable with indeterminacy. It's not comfortable with fluidity and openness that it wants things to be the way that it wants them to be. And mm -hmm. so when that gets challenged, then the ego can either relax and accept that, or it can fight with it along the various lines that we've already discussed, you yeah. know, as above, so below. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That we see these same kinds of issues across multiple levels of reality. Yeah. And that brings me to, to a sense of that there is some kind of order in this. I don't know if that's just my ego looking for the order, finding that it probably is, but either way, like there is some kind of, even at the macro level and the micro level in this, in this illusion of Maya, there is order in the illusion. And I think that order is kind of representative of the centrifugal force of God. And uh, yeah, that means that, you know, that's just either furthers the evidence that we're all connected. 
that we're all connected to everything. Because if there's order in nature, if there's order in the in the in the in the quarks, and you know, in the very in the very minuscule parts of our universe, and there's also order in the way that we act as human beings, and we act with each other, and uh, I think you can align yourself with that order. I think there's a certain way to align your personality to how to god's way if you want to phrase it like that to the to you know the way the Tao of the universe and uh i think that's up to everybody on how they find that but there is a certain certain way to live i believe i, I think there's a certain way to conduct ourselves even though we have free will um there's in my mind at least there's the right way and then there's the wrong way but there's only one right way. I don't know. It's it's hard to explain. It's hard to really conceptualize. But I think you might know what I'm saying. Yeah. The way that I like to articulate it is that at the individual level, really what we're talking about is authenticity versus inauthenticity. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that the right way, again, is not something that you're going to get from an exterior source. Like you can't just read the book like, shit, what's the right way to do it? Oh, I've got it now. Um, Like I I really love, like even in Buddhism, like the eightfold path is like right thinking, right speech, right conduct, right meditation, right? It it says all these right things. But then if you ask like, well, okay, so what is right thought? Yeah. Then the Buddhist answer is, ah, discover it for yourself, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, you can't go read the manual and say, well, what is the right thing? It's not like the the Abrahamic traditions where, where, look, God wrote down a bunch of laws and we're just supposed to follow these laws. And if we do that, then we're doing the right thing. No, you have to find it within yourself and that what is authentic for any individual is going to be different for different individuals. Um, And within that, I do think that there is a core of kind of going back to these ideas of, look, if everybody really is just one being, that that means that I'm more in alignment with reality if I treat other people as other expressions of myself and give them the same love, respect, and opportunity that I want to be given to me, that we could call that right from a certain perspective. Mm -hmm. But at the individual level, a lot of it does come down to differences within individuals. And so that's why I say, look, it's about being authentic within yourself, not trying to be an idea of who you think you should be or ought to be, but actually finding where does your energy naturally flow? Where do you become interested? Where do you want to invest yourself? So we can give a couple examples that maybe you grow up in a family where your parents keep telling you like, oh, you're so smart that you really ought to be a lawyer, that you'd be, you'd be a great lawyer. And so you grow up believing that. And then maybe you go to law school and you might find out like, damn, I really hate doing this, that I, there's just nothing about this that I enjoy. But everybody says I'd be a good lawyer and my parents kind of expected of me. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. Well, for me, that's quote unquote, the wrong thing to do because it's not in alignment with your genuine natural energy. It's not really authentic for you. Or we could take another example of, of someone who grows up and they just know that they are attracted to a member of the same sex and they, they just know it. It's not because they want it. It's just 
because that's where their energy naturally is. But maybe they grow up in a religiously conservative household that says, okay, homosexuality is sin, it's evil, it's unnatural, it's an abomination. And then that person grows up hating themselves for who they are. And then they maybe end up getting married and having kids and leading a heterosexual lifestyle. And all of it feels fake and hollow to them, but they do it because they're trying to please God and they're trying to please their religion or please their parents versus, you know, at some point they might go off and have a psychedelic experience. You know, I, I do consultations with people helping them integrate their psychedelic experience. And so this is something that happens that sometimes people go off and they take psychedelics and they realize, you know what, I'm gay. I've been living a heterosexual life for past 40 years. It's not actually me. And so setting aside all concerns of morality, all concerns of what your parents want or, or what your religion or your society wants, if being gay is authentic for you, then that is what is, quote, right for mm -hmm. you to do. And it's about discovering that within yourself and that you can't, if you're using somebody else to tell you what that is, then it's probably not it. <laughs> or if you're mm -hmm. using... Even if you say, well, look, this religious book has been around for 2000 years and people have been using this as a guidebook for life. And so it's got to have lots of wisdom in it. Well, no, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to find it within yourself. That's why it's all a process of self-discovery and hopefully done in a way that is balanced. So it's not just narcissistic self-discovery, but it is genuine self-discovery that opens you up to deeper connections, both with yourself and with others and with reality and doesn't alienate you from reality or alienate you from yourself or alienate you um, from others, but actually brings you more into connection. Because, you know, that again, going back to that non-dual unitary experience is the ultimate sense of connection. This feeling of, I genuinely am every possibility that could ever be, that that is my true nature which means that we don't have to separate ourselves from anything that we can feel in connection and that that's an energetic experience in the same way that when you love someone, you feel that connection there, that exchange of energy between the two of you. Like we are in love. That's why we have this expression. I'm in love because you're inside of it. You're connected to it and that you can be mm. in love not in the romantic sense, not in the sexual sense, but you can be in love with everyone and everything. And at the same time, you can also, I mean, this is certainly true for me, develop a distaste for inauthenticity. So it doesn't, it also doesn't mean just accepting everything that if someone is behaving really inauthentically, then you feel that and it's uncomfortable. And that's where you it, compassionately extend the invitation to others of, well, you know, there are tools that can help you be more authentic so that you could be more at peace with yourself because I would want that for myself. And so I'm going to extend that invitation to you as well. You know, mm -hmm. so there, there's room for commentary. There's room for critique. There's room for improvement, but it is about accepting this deep level of connection to all things. And most importantly, again, yeah. to yourself, to your own heart, mm -hmm. to your own energy and allowing <laughs> yourself to be that. Yeah. That's where it starts, man. Self-love. Yeah. Yeah. That's where it, it really all does. stems from. Yeah. And it's not, <laughs> it's not narcissistic at all because again, if, if there really is only God that exists, if there's only this one unitary being that exists 
And if it is made out of the energy of love, that love has no exterior object. God is in love mm. with itself. And so self-love is the core of love of God, not worship and praise yeah. and, oh, God, you're so far above me and I am just this small, insignificant speck, so let me worship you. That's just exteriorizing the whole thing. But if you mm -hmm. interiorize it, you realize that loving yourself is loving God. Loving reality mm -hmm. is loving God. Loving others is loving God. Mm -hmm. And God is love. So it is all love. Yeah, it is love. <laughs> Absolutely. That's great, man. I think we can probably wrap it up at that point. What better point to wrap it up than it's all love? <laughs> sure. Do you have any other closing statements you want to, you want to tell the world? Um, yeah, well, I would just remind people that I'm always happy to talk to them about their experiences with all of this, that I offer what I call non-dual and theogenic integration consulting services. Or just people reach out um, and I offer 30, 60, 90 minute consultations where I, you know, and I talk to people who both use psychedelics and people who don't that are looking to really, you know, integrate this into their lives. And this really is what my books are about. Um, you know, I focus pretty heavily on psychedelics because that's been the methodology that has worked for me. Um, but that I also, you know, kind of consider myself as a non-dual teacher and guide that I, I help people along this path for themselves, not because I want to be their guru. I do not ever want to be anybody's guru, but I've been through it myself and I've helped other people. And so I do know how to help people reflect on their experience. Um, so I would invite people to reach out, you know, if, if they want someone to talk to or want a reflection on that. And, um, so, you know, my personal webpage is martinball.net and for consultations, it's non-dual and theogenic integration.com is where they can find me. And, um, yeah, so I'm, pr I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. And, uh, I love it that I, every week I get to talk to people from around the world, um, who are having these kinds of experiences and, you know, just want someone to talk to about it, that I can yeah. be that person. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing to have the tool of the internet and microphones and cameras to be able to connect with people all over the world. It's really a crazy, unprecedented time to be alive. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I really have deep appreciation for it. You know, a lot of people who get into spirituality and stuff, they they get into anti-technology and, and I'm just so pro-technology that I think it's fantastic that it allows us to connect with each other. Um, and for creative types like myself, you know, it's a tool for making art and music and writing and, I think technology is fantastic. And I think it's a natural evolution of the consciousness that is reality. Um, that it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's just the next stage of evolution. It's a non-biological form of evolution, but it is a form of evolution. It's a form of taking the crude matter of reality and then transforming it into something that hasn't been before. So it, it's natural in that sense. And it's useful. Yeah, exactly. I think it, I, yeah, I see it as just like humanity is like another appendage. We're just kind of like extending our being into another light, into another way, in yeah. a way that we've never done before. And it's it's a tool because of that. You can use it to watch cat videos and TikTok dances, or you can use it to really connect with people, make true connections and, you know, explore yourself a little more. But it's all up to you and how you want to use this technology. Yeah, yeah. You know? Just like pretty much anything. Yeah. Personal yeah, responsibility. Yeah. Exactly. It is what you make of it. <laughs> yep. That's life, man. 
life's what you yep. make of it. <laughs> yep, sure is. Well, thanks, Martin. Uh, you're a cool guy. I appreciate you coming on here and talking to me. This was an amazing conversation. Uh, keep doing your thing. But uh, yeah, thanks for anybody that listened and peace out, man. All right. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate it. <laughs> Have a good night, man. All right. You too.